Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Yang. Andrew has been a CEO and co-founder and executive of several technology and education companies. And this year, he announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States in 2020. And the central plank to his platform is universal basic income. Now, many people have been asking that I do a podcast on this topic. And uh, Andrew does a fantastic job representing it. And he is running for president. So that obviously adds interest as well. And he has a book titled The War on Normal People, which we talk about in this episode. And we really cover every related matter here. We talk about what UBI is, the principal arguments against it, whether it would be difficult to implement or not, what its likely consequences would be. This is a good tour of the issue. And I don't think this issue is going away. So now, without further delay, I bring you Andrew Yang. I am here with Andrew Yang. Andrew, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Sam. So I will have properly introduced you in my intro here, but briefly, you have written a very interesting book titled The War on Normal People, which is your case for universal basic income, which we'll, we'll be talking about in this podcast. I've had many requests to cover this topic, and, and you cover it so well in your book and so urgently. So that, I'm sure, will be the, the topic of conversation. But you also happen to be running for the presidency of the United States in 2020, and that is an extraordinarily novel thing to be doing. Before we get into UBI, how is it that you come to be running for the presidency, and how does one even think about making that decision? Because that, I, mean, I think it must seem like an incredibly quixotic thing to attempt, even if someone already has a huge national platform, which I suspect you don't yet. <laughs> Give us your background and how you come to find yourself in this position. Sure. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, I ran a national education company that helped people get into business school. And I, I personally taught the analyst classes at Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, JP Morgan. I saw all of these smart, energetic young people who hated their jobs and didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. So then when my company was acquired by the Washington Post in 2009, I thought about the problems of the world. And the biggest problem to me at the time was that we had so much talent doing things that were not going to drive our society forward in meaningful ways. Uh, they were going to become investment bankers, management consultants, corporate lawyers like I was for five months. Uh, and that wasn't going to be what we needed. So I started a nonprofit called Venture for America to help create businesses around the country and channel our talented young people to environments like Detroit or Baltimore and New Orleans or St. Louis to help rejuvenate regional economies. And so I saw a lot of the country. I think you're from the West Coast. I'm from the East Coast. I had never been to Detroit or Cleveland or St. Louis or these places before starting Venture for America. And our goal was to create American jobs, which uh, we, we did. We, we've helped create about 3,000 jobs to date. Uh, but I, I was in my role as founder and CEO of Venture for America for six and a half years. And the more I saw, the more I realized that our economy has changed for good, that we're automating away so many jobs. So imagine, Sam, if it was your job to create jobs, and then you realize at a certain point that you were pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And so from there, I went on a quest to figure out what the heck you do about the hole in the bottom of the bathtub, uh, and then concluded that a universal basic income was the most realistic and efficient solution that one could implement in a reasonable time frame, essentially before the truck drivers get sent home, which is going to be a massive problem. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. And so then when you go to the drawing board and you say, hey, how am I going to get universal basic income across the finish line and make it a reality in the five to 10 years we have before the truckers' jobs get automated, uh, then running for president becomes really the only logical thing to do uh, if you're trying to solve a problem. And, and that's what I do as an entrepreneur is like you see a problem, you try and solve for it. So this to me was the, the clearest path. And how would you describe yourself politically? You know, I, I suspect you and I are kind of similar, that I've uh, traditionally been very democratic leaning. I consider myself something of an independent at this point, though I line up 
with Democrats and liberals on most social priorities. Uh, I think economically, uh, I'm, I'm like many entrepreneurs where like, I, I feel like, like there are a lot of things that you need private industry to tackle. And uh, I, I am concerned about the fact that the government is not excellent at a lot of things that we wish it were excellent at. You've written this incredibly urgent book about universal basic income, also known as UBI. The case you make for the, the kind of economic emergency that is coming upon us is pretty dire, and we'll kind of run through your, your analysis. But what is, let's just define UBI for those who, who haven't heard of the concept. It's actually a fairly old idea. I wasn't aware that it was as old as you discuss it to be in, in the book. What is universal basic income? Well, universal basic income is a policy where every citizen of a country gets a certain amount of money from the government, no questions asked, every period, essentially every month. And as you say, Thomas Paine <laughs> advocated for it way back in the day uh, at the founding of, of the country. And it's been baked into our country's DNA for decades, where Martin Luther King was for it, Milton Friedman was for it, Friedrich Hayek was for it. Richard Nixon was for it. It even passed the House of Representatives in 1971 and then stalled in the Senate because of, uh, of Democrats that wanted a higher income threshold than was being proposed. But a thousand economists signed a letter in the 60s saying this would be great for the economy and society. It's a policy where everyone gets a certain amount of money to meet basic needs every month. There's something you tackle early in the book. and I, I want to I just get into the ethics here because I think there's a very strong bias, especially among conservatives, but I, you know, it's a bias that I, I seem to encounter everywhere against this idea of giving everyone this, this free handout. And it's, it, it's tied to this, this notion that there's some kind of work ethic that will be undermined here, and we'll, we'll talk about the objections to it. But there's this, I guess what I would call the illusion of a meritocracy that you, you deal with early in the book. And at one point you say, and this is a quote, the logic of meritocracy is driving us to ruin. And then you go on to talk about how it's leading to this assumption that if someone isn't succeeding in today's economy, it's their fault, right? So the blame is on the, the person who is still poor, given all the opportunity that is available. And it ignores the fact that it was, some people are, are simply luckier than others across every variable that that is open to difference that that people aren't responsible for. So I mean, and you describe your own background. You talk about how your academic success was almost entirely the result of you being smart and good at taking tests. And these are not qualities about you that you created in yourself. And they're not the result of hard work and they're not the result of character. And I would, you know, I would argue if you know anything about my views on free will, I would say that a person's capacity for hard work and their character is also not something that they create. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's the last trench in which the people for the meritocracy are, are fighting. But these dominoes, I think, should fall pretty quickly. I mean, how much, how much can we blame someone who isn't as smart or happens to be bad at taking tests for not being able to fully capitulate the success you have found in your own life? And of course, as you discuss in the book, the differences don't end there. There, you know, there are people who have two parents. There are people who have one. There are people who have none. Some people and their families enjoy perfect health. Some just get absolutely devastated by by the bad luck of of illness and injury. We know that all of these stresses and the kinds of scarcity associated with them are bad for people. They're bad. They 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 compete for cognitive bandwidth, as you describe at some length in the book. So. Let's talk about the, the ethics of the situation and the kinds of resistance you get to the idea based on a sense that it's just simply wrong to hand out money to people. Well, one of the points I make is that it's not as if the truck drivers are about to get dumber and lazier overnight. It's just that their trucks are going to start driving themselves. <laughs> you know, it has nothing to do with their character and work ethic. It doesn't matter if they're a good truck driver or a bad truck driver, particularly. It's just that we can save $168 billion if we automate their jobs and probably thousands of lives because that's how many people die uh, every year. So it, it works on both sides of the dimensions, as you point out. Like I certainly attribute most of my success 
through my early years, just the fact I was really good at filling out bubbles on Scantron sheets. Uh, and the opposite is true for, for other people, where if you were not good at qualities that are academic system prizes, then you'll be increasingly marginalized and beaten down and told that, you know, you should think about <laughs> like a, like a, a second rate or third tier like way of life for yourself. And that that's what's appropriate. So the, the logic of the meritocracy is about to, well, it's breaking down around us because people are catching on. But more than that, right now we rely upon the marketplace to assign and attribute certain values to people's time. And one of the, the references I made to a group I spoke to last week was that you can have a radiologist who spent a dozen years in education, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of training, spent 10 years becoming excellent at detecting tumors on films. And then tomorrow, or literally right now, a computer is going to be a lot better at that than that radiologist because it can see shades of gray that the human eye can't detect. And it can re reference millions of films instead of hundreds or thousands. So the, the crudeness of the market as an effective allocator of value to our time uh, is about to be exposed to people. Uh, and, and so the, the we have to evolve the next form of capitalism as quickly as possible, or, or else we're going to find ourselves in almost unimaginable circumstances very, very soon. Yeah, so that this market failure to value time is it's a huge problem. And you, I think at some point in the book, you list all of the, the things that are important to us, obviously important to us, that the market currently doesn't capture or capture well. And that's, that includes things like the environment, it includes teaching and childcare, it even includes journalism. And, and you know, I, I would argue that it, it includes digital content almost in its entirety. I mean, just the way we have failed to fund quality online and we're now beholden to this advertising model that is that is incentivizing all the wrong things and driving us mad on social media. I mean, all of these are market failures. And as you point out, we're not only talking about blue-collar jobs, we're talking about white-collar jobs and traditionally high-prestige jobs, you know, like, as you say, a radiologist or you know, doctors across the board. I mean, we, we could argue that the profession of, of nursing is more secure than the, the profession of oncology with respect to coming advances in AI. So there's a kind of this, this barbell picture of very low-end, low-prestige, low-compensation service jobs and super high-end creative jobs that will be most likely spared, certainly in any near-term time frame. But in the middle, you basically have everything from many service jobs and basically any job that has a significantly repetitive routine characteristic. And I think at one point, I think it was McKinsey that said that 73% of food prep jobs can be automated. And you know, the Federal Reserve categorized 44% of all jobs as routine and yeah. susceptible to automation. This is kind of a coming apocalypse for jobs that is, again, it can, it can happen very, very quickly. I mean, the radiology one is, is super poignant because it's just the next software update could achieve just the, the perfect cancellation of that kind of job. Yeah. And, and one of the most shocking things I uncovered in researching for the book was that this is no longer speculative. We're in the middle of it uh, and we're dealing with it in the worst way possible, which is by ignoring it, ignoring it and pretending it's not happening. Where if you look at our labor force participation rate today, it's down to 62.7%, which is a multi-decade low and the same levels as El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. Our life expectancy has declined for the last two years because middle-aged Americans are killing themselves in record numbers, where seven people die of opiates every hour. And the disability rate is climbing to a point where now there are more Americans on disability than work in construction. When I, I tried to find out what happened to the manufacturing workers that lost their jobs in the Midwest, it turns out that almost half of them just left the workforce entirely. And then of that group, about half went on disability. So I studied economics in college, and what classical economics says would happen is completely not happening if you actually dig into the numbers and the facts. So this is no longer something we can like look ahead to and say, what are we going to do? This is ripping our society apart. 
the reason why Donald Trump is our president today is because of the spreading dysfunction. And right now, the country is locked in a struggle between functioning and dysfunction, reason and unreason, uh, and scarcity and abundance. And scarcity is winning. And that's what we have to reverse through universal basic income. It's our best way forward. So I want to talk more about just what, what this would mean and how it could be implemented and what the, the likely effects would be. But I, I want to deal with one objection up front because there's this there's a kind of free market fundamentalism that one runs into. And in, it seems especially in Silicon Valley at the moment, there's a lot of libertarians in Silicon Valley. And I actually, I, I was at lunch with some people uh, and one of these one of the people included a very successful entrepreneur and, and VC now. But we were talking about UBI, and I told him I was going to have you on the podcast. And then he, he sent me an email, an incredibly generous, detailed email offering kind of reasons to doubt this whole premise. And you know, many of them you will have heard before, but it was very comprehensive. And I, I won't read the whole email, but I, I just want to get at what was his central concerns here because I've, I've heard them many times, and, and no doubt you have, and I think it's this is the kind of the first objection that you just have to figure out how to ram through if you're going to get people to take UBI seriously. And so it's, it's this notion, which you've just expressed, that it really is different this time, that, because we have obviously lived in a world for at least 150 years or so where we have noticed this effect of breakthroughs in technology where something comes online and it destroys jobs. We, we find new efficiencies in some labor process, and people can't envision what the replacement jobs will be. And so there's kind of this, this Luddite delusion. And what we're saying, what you're saying, certainly, is that this time is different. But some would argue here is that, one, this is a failure of imagination. I mean, this is, you, could have, you could have gotten into a time machine and stood with the Luddites and shared their delusion and not seen what jobs would, would come in the wake of all the jobs that were being destroyed, there's this conviction that there will always be things for people to do. There will be jobs for as long as there's anything in this world that people want. You know, I, I find this line of reasoning just so lazy and ridiculous and frustrating, where otherwise educated people will actually cite the Industrial Revolution <laughs> and say... But look, 120 years ago, we went through something similar and things were like, like, that's actually the argument. But saying that there will always be jobs as long as there are needs fails to take into account how the market values human labor. It's like if, if a factory disintegrates in Michigan and then there are thousands of people out of work and don't have the money to somehow relocate to uh, San Francisco or someplace where the, the region, and if they did, there'd, there'd, there'd be no, no way for them to actually manage the cost of living. I mean, like I, I spent the last six and a half years walking the Midwest and the South and other places. And uh, it's, yeah, just like that kind of ideological oversimplification just ignores realities on the ground. Like no one actually goes and hangs out. That was actually part of the picture he sketched here. He, he thinks the onus is really on the difficulty that people find moving to new centers of growth and the zoning restrictions that make it so costly to bring on new people in cities like San Francisco where, where the boom is happening. He thinks that if we want to help people, we have to make it easier for them to move, but fundamentally not treat them as liabilities who have to be paid for, but to treat them as assets, because in, in his view, they will always, people will always be assets. And, and his, count, his counterpoint also does boil down to this, that if we weren't destroying jobs through breakthroughs in technology, that would be synonymous with a, with a, the lack of material progress. I mean, this is like this is always the process that, that that has to be hoped for, destroying jobs. And if we're not destroying jobs in the medical sector, there's no way will people will be able to afford medical care in the future because it's, there's no way to bring the cost down. So this is it is this kind of creative destruction picture of of finding new efficiencies. But he thinks that the solution would be to just make it as easy as possible for people to relocate and find the the new areas of growth. Well, that's something I'm very much in favor of. And that was something that universal basic income would help a great deal with, where if you look at the current rate of interstate relocation, 
in this country, it's also at a multi-decade low. Even as the opportunities are shifting, people are moving less and not more. They're hunkering down. And that's a massive problem. I mean, as president, I would pay for people to move, but giving them universal basic income actually does a lot of the same thing, uh, where we need to make our labor market much more dynamic and mobile. Uh, it's, I will say, though, that trying to say, essentially, the market will get it right, and we just need to push everyone to stay market mobile and market competitive, uh, will break down. I mean, it, it's already breaking down. And imagining that it's going to be a constant, because as you said, there's going to be massive job polarization, where if you look at the five most common job types in the country, retail and sales, clerical and administrative, food service and food prep, truck driving and transportation and manufacturing, they're all going to shrink immensely. And many of those people will not realistically be able to identify new opportunities. Those five categories I just named are about half of all American jobs. And uh, most of those people have high school educations. The median truck driver is 49 years old, 94% male. The median retail worker is 39 uh, majority female, about 60%. So we're talking about people who are working at 12, 14, $15 an hour jobs, and then having those jobs disappear. It would help if they could magically move to another part of the country, it would help a great deal. Um, but it's, it's a multifaceted problem that's very deep and human. So yeah, let's tackle this, the poster issue here of trucking, because he actually sent me an article, you might have seen this article in The Atlantic, that offers a counterpoint to this fear. There have been many studies that suggest that, as you said, trucking will be one of the first jobs and, and one of the most consequential to be decimated by automation. But this Atlantic article, I think, citing a study that was somewhat curiously funded by Uber, <laughs> that doesn't automatically disqualify it, but I, I guess we should add a few grains of salt, it suggested that not only will trucking jobs not be hurt, but there, in fact, might be more people working in that industry because the cost of freight will go down and, and there'll be more demand. And for the longest time, it will be impossible to automate the final mile so that you'll still need a person in a truck you know, who will be better rested and will be, be able to do many other things, but who will have to navigate that final mile into a, a crowded city. and. Many of the other other effects that people worry about, like you know, tiny towns being bypassed by you know, now sleeping truck drivers, their economies will be affected. But what do you say to this notion that, that this fear is fundamentally incorrect, that no, no, no matter how much we automate trucking, there will still be other jobs, and even that the very same truckers would be doing, because we're just not actually picturing how much truckers do apart from pushing the pedals and steering the wheel on a truck? Well, to, to me, the truth is in the numbers, where if you see the number of truck drivers in this country is about three and a half million. Again, 94% male, average age 49, majority of some kind of uh, early chronic health problem like obesity or diabetes or high blood pressure because it's deeply unhealthy to sit in a truck for 11 hours a day for four days a week. And then at, there are another 5 million workers in truck stops, motels, diners, retail establishments serving the truckers. You cannot overstate the importance of freight to many communities around the country where almost 10% of all workers in the state of Nebraska uh, are working in support of trucking. So if you play out how this is going to happen, you're going to have human truckers for a long time, but you're also going to start automating their jobs very quickly where there's going to be a human-driven truck and then two robot trucks trailing behind it. So there's going to be a human driver. And, there, and then there are definitely going to be human drivers that get into the truck in the last 10 miles before it goes into the densely populated urban area. But what's that ratio going to be? The ratio is certainly not going to be one-to-one -one because if that was the case, then <laughs> you'd have like a lot of truck drivers just hanging out uh, outside of cities waiting to get to a truck. Uh, the, my friends in Silicon Valley tell me that their model is going to be to have teleoperators sitting in a warehouse in Nevada or Arizona where they take control of the robot truck 
whenever the computer is not sure what to do. But again, what's that ratio going to be? It's certainly not going to be one-to-one. So even if you were to be conservative and say, hey, you might still need 2 million uh, truck drivers out of this 3.5 million, I mean, you're still talking about 1.5 million middle-aged men, most of whom uh, who don't have marketable skills, who are going to go from making about $45,000 a year uh, to making some fraction of that next to nothing. Uh, and so to, to me, you know, you just use your head and look at the numbers and say, hey, of the 5 million retail workers, like how many of them are going to still be needed when the trucks don't stop anymore? If you have 3.5 million truck drivers, how many of them are really, really going to need if they only have to get into the cab for the last 10 miles? So we're, we're in for, you know, another thing that like, people are like, oh, it's not going to be five years, it's going to be 10. <laughs> like we'll have figured everything out in 10 years. So like, the, in, like you can just look at it and see that it's a disaster in the making. Uh, and only 13% of truckers are unionized. So there's not going to be much of a conversation to be had. This is just going to happen to them. Yeah. And at one point in the book, you cite a, a stat, I forget what the source is, but 80% of lost manufacturing jobs since 2000 are due to automation. Are you aware of that being a controversial figure, or is that a widely accepted idea that automation is the reason why our manufacturing jobs, 80% of them, have been lost? Yeah, that, there are different estimates, but people agree that it's the vast majority. So, you know, you could argue for 70 instead of 80. <laughs> so it's not simply that they've been sent overseas? No, most of it's due to automation. And if you go into a factory, you can see that play out where where once there were, were rows and rows of humans, now they're just a handful of humans ministering to, to machines and robots. So this, uh, I, I want to talk about the economic picture here that's already fairly dire. I mean, the, the stats on wealth inequality and income inequality you present are troubling, even if we were not facing this coming transformation of industry and, and information technology with, with AI and automation. But I think the the picture you just painted is is hard to doubt, and I'm I'm a little mystified that people still doubt it so strenuously. That this it's just the fact that whatever new jobs do get created, and undoubtedly some new jobs will be created. There's this general trend toward those being fewer jobs than the jobs that got destroyed, and they in the main will require more specialized skills, not less. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so you and you, so you have this picture of you know even if it was one to one, even if for every job that got canceled, a new job opened up, you have this picture of this retraining burden which seems totally unrealistic. You know, you just have to picture millions of truckers being retrained to in you know the the extreme case be software engineers, you know, that that's not going to happen. And as long as there's this general trend toward more specialization, the burden of retraining is, it does seem insurmountable for many, if not most of these cases. Yes. If you look at the data around the efficacy of government-funded retraining programs, uh, they range between 0% and 37% in independent studies. And this is when the government actually spends thousands of dollars trying to retrain people, which it generally does not. It's not like when a mall closes and 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years. It's not like when a mall closes, there's an army of government retrainers surrounding the mall saying, we're here to retrain you. I mean, that's ridiculous. So expecting these workers to be retrained ignores many, many very obvious realities. And I have to say, Sam, I've been having these conversations and it's been shocking to me how often otherwise very intelligent, educated people adopt really very, very lazy, uh, non-fact-based arguments where instead of doing what I feel like they should do, which is to say, oh, that's interesting. Like, let me explore that. Like, what are the facts around this? What are the facts about that? Instead, there's this very reflexive instinct around market-based solutions and retraining and everything is going to be fine in the Industrial Revolution. And I've had that experience so many times now that I think there's something much deeper at work. It, it is amazing because, it, well, there is this, there are a few heuristics or analogies that are doing an inordinate amount of work here in, in people's thinking. And, and one, you know, we've just covered the analogy to previous moments of technological unemployment. 
as though that could just keep going on in the face of any conceivable technological breakthrough. And it's, it's just, it should be obvious. I mean, you would think it would be obvious, but it isn't, that AI is, and I think you say this at some point in the book, it might be a, might be a quote from Ben Bernanke, but I think it's a quote from someone, that, that AI is not analogous to an internal combustion engine. Yeah. The, the, the way in which an engine replaces human labor is not at all the way in which true AI will replace human labor. I mean, it's just, it's just, there's a category shift in what is being accomplished with this, with this new technology. And it's just, it is nowhere written into the, the book of nature that there must always be things that we value and are willing to pay for that humans will be able to do best. And certainly it's not written anywhere that there will always be an equal number of things that we, we will be willing to pay for that humans do as well as any other technology, you know, when compared to any point in the past. And so, the, you know, the idea that this is a stable situation when we are envisioning a time when we will be able to build machines that are better than us at, in the ultimate case, everything we do, right? And then, then it's just what is left for humans will be guided merely by our preference to be in the presence of humans, even if they're doing this, this job worse than machines can do it. It's a very short list of things I think you will insist be done by a human. You know, you could probably put massage therapist on the top of that list, but, <laughs> you know, it's certainly not oncology. I'm, I am, uh, like you, mystified by the skepticism here. So what, what are, let, let's talk about the picture of our, our economic situation as it is now, and then, then we'll talk a little bit more about the objections to UBI. I mean, I'll just give you a few facts from your book. One that was startling to me is that 94% of new jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were contractor or temp jobs. So this already we're seeing the, the gig economy change the face of human employment. And that has obviously negative implications for, for the social safety net and people's sense of their own job security. During this time, most of the wealth gains and the, and the, and the, and the productivity gains have gone to the, the top 1%, as, as is well known. The top 20% of people own 92% of the stock market. So, so the bottom 80% own the remaining 8% of the stock market. So what we see in the stock market is affecting, for the most part, the top 20% of American society. And then you get into some facts about what's happening to young men and that 22% of men in their 20s with less than a bachelor's degree have done no work in the previous year. And that's up from 9% in the year 2000. And 75% of the time they, they used to spend working is now spent on the computer, and that's mostly playing video games. So we have this picture of, of people falling out of gainful employment, or at least delaying their, their entry into the, the workforce for a very long time, and falling into some kind of almost like an Aldous Huxley-level derangement of their priorities, where they're just playing video games and not figuring out what to do with their lives. I guess one obvious objection here is when you, when you focus on that picture, why wouldn't UBI exacerbate this problem? If we're paying people $1,000 a month, why isn't that going to usher in some truly dystopian reality where you have just, you know, all the people who are in their mother's basements playing video games now are just, we're subsidizing them to do that in a way that's totally dysfunctional. Well, the, the main reason is that if you had, so I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes and I used to like video games a lot when I was younger, <laughs> where if you were getting $1,000 a month, then you're much more likely to get out of your parents' basement and visit friends and find things to do that are, are somewhat more social and external facing. I mean, a lot of the reason why these men are retreating is because there's no real economic security or path forward for them. And they, they feel much better served by going online and hanging out with their friends and uh, making progress in a measurable way, at least in their uh, gaming environment. So 
you could certainly try and attach a work requirement to it. Uh, but one of the, the dangers to me is that like the, the work requirements to me actually push much more, more towards a dystopian reality where, as you, you point out, it's like, what are the jobs going to be? How are they going to be distributed, in, uh, particularly geographically in a lot of parts of the country? Because we are in a divergent economy where certain, and I, you know, I felt like I was traveling between worlds or dimensions when I would fly between like Detroit or Cleveland or St. Louis back to New York or San Francisco very often. So the realities are that, that it's going to be a generational challenge to find ways to engage men in particular, young men without college educations in productive ways that further society. And that's going to be something that we grapple with for decades. Perhaps we should just sketch how this would be implemented, because this is, I think the picture here is of some bizarre social experiment, which has been untested. But as you point out in the book, this has actually been tested in various places. And so we have some data on the effect of UBI. But it also seems akin to socialism and, and even communism for people. But I mean, one thing is clear, this need not, and in fact, does not entail creating any more government bureaucracy. So, so talk about just what it would mean to have a universal basic income and, and, and how it would be affected. So the, the great thing about universal basic income and what makes it so powerful is that it would flow to the bottom line of individu individuals and families and households in a way that would enhance their quality of life almost immediately, where according to the data, child nutrition and graduation rates go up, mental health improves, domestic violence goes down, hospital visits go down, mobility goes up. So the, the wonderful thing is that the government could actually get this done in a way that it could not do many of the other things that we claim it, it might be able to do, like educate all Americans for jobs in the future impossible. <laughs> you know, like, like, like the government could try and it would just end up, uh, you know, not, not faring that well, as you can tell by the numbers. So my friend Andy Stern, who used to run the largest labor union in the country, says that the government is not great at many things, but it is excellent at sending large numbers of checks to large numbers of people promptly and reliably. And it does that to great effect every month. About half of Americans right now are receiving some kind of income support from the government. So the, the wonderful thing about universal basic income is that it's something the government can do, which is send $1,000 a month to people's bank accounts or to their mailbox, and then people would use it to improve their qualities of life very, very quickly. Uh, and in Alaska, where the petroleum dividend has been in effect for the last 36 years, you can see some of the effects where uh, child nutrition improves, it's created thousands of jobs, inequality is lower. Uh, many, many things that make that petroleum dividend wildly popular. And that was implemented by a Republican governor 36 years ago, and Alaska is a deep red state. So it's clearly possible to do this in the United States in conservative environments. But as a counterpoint to that, what would you say about the example of a place like Saudi Arabia, which is a kind of UBI situation? Obviously, they're, they're pulling their their petroleum money out of the ground and handing it out to people. I don't know the specifics currently there, but this is a way of, this is generally viewed as a, a highly negative outcome, not just for Saudi Arabia, but for virtually every state that has been able to rely on petrodollars. It's created a situation where the, the government no longer has to be responsive to any kind of democratic process or the needs of, of people because it, just, it can just mollify them with these payments. Do you see any a negative analogy there to be drawn for UBI? Well, that, that's one reason why the universal basic income level that I'm advocating for is $1,000 a month, the freedom dividend, or $12,000 a year, which puts you at below the poverty line in the entirety of the United States. The poverty level in the US is $12,770 or so. So if you can imagine someone who right now, maybe they're a server in a restaurant and they're making $18,000 a year, and they're getting an additional $1,000 a month, they're not going to quit their jobs on that because that would mean a pay cut of 33%. Whereas if they keep doing their jobs, then they'll make 30,000 and then maybe they can start saving and stocking it away. So one of the issues with some of the international comparisons is that the income level is truly meant to be something of a work replacement. 
um, as is the case in, in some of the Middle Eastern countries. Whereas $1,000 a month is going to end up being a supplement and a mobility enhancer, but would not be a work replacement except at the most extreme uh, situations. One other conundrum here is, is why, so if this is, if we're in the situation where automation is already decimating jobs in a way that is unacknowledged and it's only getting worse, why is unemployment currently so low? And why is productivity also acknowledged to be low? Because it, it would seem of necessity it should be high if automation is in fact exerting its effects. Yeah. So, and I write about this in the book where the unemployment level really is, is highly misleading because it relies only upon people who are currently in the labor force looking for work. Uh, so it doesn't account for the fact that our labor force participation rate has gone down to multi-decade lows and 95 million Americans have left the workforce entirely. And it also doesn't account for underemployment, which the New York Fed now measures to be 44% among recent college graduates. So as long as you have a job, even if it's below what your uh, skill level or your education level would indicate, then that doesn't show up in headline unemployment. Now, the productivity number is a little bit trickier. At least one journalist, Ryan Avent, proposed, and I agree with this, is that because of the, the success of technologies, you have more and more people doing jobs that are, frankly, not that productive, <laughs> where, because people just have to do a job, a job, um, in order to put food on the table. So then they end up doing jobs that don't add much to the productivity number because they're, they're kind of, you know, jobs that are somewhat economically superfluous. So one of the things I propose in the book as well, and this is something that scares me stiff, uh, which, which is that really we can't tell what's going on until the next downturn, which is when the knives are going to come out and the companies are going to start automating and cost-cutting to a much higher degree. Because as a former CEO myself, you don't always march around trying to, to cut costs when times are supposed to be good in an expansion. You really start drilling when there's a recession. And then and you look at the historical pattern of when layoffs occur. When there's a recession, then we're really going to see the reality of how many workers these companies need. So let's tackle this idea, which you kind of flagged briefly when we were talking about the dystopian generation of gamers, which almost certainly is a, is a kind of myth. The, the idea that, that meaning is to be found in most of the jobs that people are doing. And I, you, you have a, a quote by a historian who I'd never heard of, Benjamin Honeycutt, which is rather amusing, but he's, I mean, he's said that if a cashier's job were a video game, we would consider it the most punishingly boring game ever designed. And yet magically, when we call it a job, politicians praise it as a, as a source of meaning and dignity and fulfillment and really the kind of the only conceivable source that like, what would this person be doing with their life if they weren't a cashier deriving so much meaning from this job? And yet so Honeycutt says that purpose and meaning and identity and fulfillment and creativity and autonomy, these are things that positive psychology has shown us to be necessary for our well-being, but these are absent in many, if not most, jobs, and certainly what we would consider the average job. Yet there is this problem of meaning, that people need to find something to do with, the, with their lives that is fulfilling to one or another degree. And it is, is just a fact that because virtually everyone has to work to survive, work is the placeholder for that project. And in the absence of real necessity, and you know, the fear is that UBI would, would undercut this, this real necessity, we will have millions of aimless, opiate-abusing, alcohol-abusing people who have just become unmoored. Yes, and, and that really is the massive challenge. Some people say to me, uh, hey, if we're really automating the jobs away, universal basic income is not the solution, which I completely agree with. And if you look at the data, it's the case that if someone doesn't have a job, especially if they're a man, they tend to disintegrate into antisocial and self-destructive behaviors. I mean, that's just, again, facts and data. So the, the goal is to try and get people into environments where they're not all cashiers, <laughs> which is really, the, the, to me, like one of the dystopian futures to avoid is that the government comes around and says, hey, 
like you can make enough to live if you do this make work nonsense job and like stand there in the park and you know play tour guide or whatever that you know seems like the the subsistence job of the day for the unskilled so that that to me is uh, what we have to avoid and the major challenge really is what does provide the structure and purpose and fulfillment that we imagine work to provide to millions and millions uh, of Americans every day. So the universal basic income has the main has a, an incredible virtue where it puts more people in position to be able to make that determination. And it would create, according to the Roosevelt Institute, four and a half million new jobs in our economy, because if people have more money to spend, then they're going to end up spending it in local businesses and on tutoring and car repairs and everything else. And that's going to create jobs. And then it also puts people in position to perhaps see what it is they want to work on, think about even the business they want to start. I mean, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and one of the things that uh, discourages me the most is that if you look at the rates of business formation in the U.S., they are also down to multi-decade lows. And uh, rates of entrepreneurship among millennials, the lowest of any generation in modern history. And a lot of this is because of economic insecurity, but it's also because people don't have a real sense as to what they want to work on. And if you had even some basic income coming in every month, then you might think about the business you want to start, the organization you want to found. Uh, and that's how we end up creating more meaning and more fulfillment for people in part. But we need to do more. And one of the things that I recommend in the book is that we need to implement a new digital social currency that maps to some of the things that we care about that would be backed by the government uh, because it needs some sort of real monetary value to drive meaningful behavior. Yeah, so say more about that. What, what do you mean by digital social currency? Well, so that, that is really the project is you look around and say, okay, our labor force participation rate is already down to 62.7%. Like, we already have one out of five men in their 20s not in the workforce in meaningful ways. And that is the problem that's just going to get worse and worse. So there are three ways to address this, in my opinion. One, to do nothing, which is our current plan. Number two is to try and pay people to do things, which has its own set of problems. And then the third is to create a new currency that provides access points and meaningful activities, or we hope they're meaningful, for people to do things that we know are valuable that right now the monetary market decides to value at zero. So that list could go something like taking care of the elderly, improving the environment, nurturing our children, arts and creativity, infrastructure, journalism, things that many people would like to do if they had an opportunity to do so in that it was somewhat remunerative. So we create a new currency that maps to those values. We make it locally based so that it's not something that, that's, run, that, that's run centrally. And we try and create more civic opportunities and engagement opportunities for people at different skill levels around the country. But just to be clear here, this is an idea that's distinct from UBI. I mean, UBI entails nothing other than sending people checks and having them spend that money on whatever they want. What you're envisioning now is some other innovation that creates some new currency associated with people's time and, and philanthropic impulses and kind of almost like an, a, a barter and exchange system where I think it's called time banking, which already exists someplace, right, where people can volunteer hours of time to you know, help their neighbor move in or, or you know, haul trash or whatever it is, and, and they can be they can draw on some other neighbor's banked time to, to help with some project they have. And what this seems to leverage is the different ways people feel about exchanging their time, and they have, they have different associations with that than simply paying for things. And this is what you're, what you're almost calling forward, a, a different part of the human mind and, and kind of human social glue, where it's, you know, everything is no longer strictly mercenary, but you're creating an economy of, of time and, and attention. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is based on time banking, where you can earn a time dollar by, by doing something for someone else for an hour. And it, it's, it doesn't matter uh, what your education or skill level is. Um, the, one of the premises is that everyone's time has value. Uh, and 
we need to support that kind of behavior in a huge way because our community ties are breaking down around the country in every measurable dimension. And expecting that to reverse itself in the face of what we're seeing economically uh, is obviously unrealistic. So we need to invest in it. And the best way to do so would be through a new currency. So back to UBI for a moment. How would you pay for it? This also happens to be one of the first concerns one hits. This seems extravagantly expensive. And in a world where we find it difficult to pay for anything else we want, how is it that you liberate the funds whereby you can pay every American $1,000 a month for the rest of his or her life? Yes. So the great thing is that our economy has grown to $19 trillion in total, up $4 trillion in the last 10 years alone. And we have the money. We have plenty of money. It's just being very, very poorly managed and allocated right now. So a, a freedom dividend of $1,000 per adult between 18 and 64 would cost about $1.5 trillion per year on top of what we're already spending on welfare, food stamps, uh, disability, and the like. And the way that I would fund this would be through a value-added tax at half the European level, because the trap we're in right now is that income taxes are terrible at generating revenue from AI and software and machines, because the beneficiaries tend to be large tech companies who just funnel it through Ireland or someplace, the <laughs> Bahamas, their favorite tax shelter of choice. Uh, and, and so a value-added tax would be much better at extracting the gains. And, and our economy is so large that a value-added tax at half the European level would get us $800 billion, which gets us to uh, about two-thirds of the cost of the freedom dividend. Then the other third we'd get, because if you project that the economy is going to grow by between $1 and $2 trillion, because you're putting this money into the hands of American consumers, the revenue to GDP ratio in the U.S. is about 25%. So we'll get back 250 to $500 billion increased tax revenues. And then the last thing is that we're going to save tens of billions of dollars on the money we already spend on healthcare, incarceration, homelessness, drug rehab, and other services that we would need less of, that this is actually a much more cost-efficient way to move society forward because things get very expensive when people become dysfunctional and hit our institutions, when they wind up incarcerated, or on the streets or in our emergency rooms, that's when things get very, very expensive. So this is actually eminently affordable and will enable us to grow the economy by, according to the Roosevelt Institute, about $2.5 trillion per year in perpetuity and create 4.5 million new jobs. Is there a savings coming from aspects of the, the social safety net as it is currently structured that get replaced by UBI? Or are you just imagining this is on top of the existing structure and we don't we don't change that layer at all, at least initially? Well, my plan is to make it opt in. So if you're currently receiving food stamps or other benefits, you can keep everything exactly as is, or you can opt for the freedom dividend of $1,000 in cash. So if you're getting less than $1,000, you'll probably take the cash. If you're getting more, then you might keep things as they are. But the five to 600 billion we currently spend does end up reducing the cost of the freedom dividend, because if you're already getting, let's say, 1300 a month on disability, we're not going to give you another $1,000 on top of that. Mm. But would, would you imagine it being more efficient? If, if we could just rewrite the, the software of society from scratch, would you want to see UBI be the only social safety net? Or would you, would you still want things like food stamps and other welfare programs? Well, it would end up replacing a lot of it even now because a lot of people who are currently on food stamps and other programs would prefer the cash. But one story I'll tell is that a friend of mine has a sister on disability and the disability churn rate or the levels at which people get off of disability once they're on is literally 0%. No one ever gets off disability. And my friend's sister is even afraid to volunteer in her community because she's afraid that someone's going to think she's able-bodied and then report her and then take her disability benefits away. That no one, no one will ever hazard a lifetime of guaranteed money for a tenuous part-time job. Uh, and so right now we're sending the worst of all possible messages to people, which is like, hey, 
stay at home and be disabled. <laughs> like, you can't even volunteer. So that's the kind of thing that we need to replace. We need to replace all of these perverse incentives that debilitate people, really, or keep them, you know, keep them in these poverty traps. And that, so the, the goal is that over time, a universal basic income would replace many of those programs. It's a fascinating topic, and its importance is looming more and more each day. And it's, it's just, it's amazing that it's not a front page discussion. But hopefully, with your effort in industry over the next couple of years, it will be. Tell me what your life is looking like as a presidential candidate at this point. How are you spending your time and what sorts of things are you doing to make this conversation more prominent? You know, it's more fun than I thought it was going to be, Sam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm running for president. So you asked before what it takes. Running for president is almost entirely uh, social construction, as are most things, it turns out, like money. <laughs> but uh, so my, my days are spent talking to people. Um, not always people like you, but like people about what's possible and the fact that universal basic income in a democracy is something that we can make happen. Most people regard it as, uh, you know, like a fantasy, like it's too good to be true. Um, again, ignoring the fact that it was conventional political wisdom, uh, num- like not that long ago, like in 1971, and, and like passed the House. So my my days are spent talking to people, uh, raising money, getting the message out. Uh, spreading the spreading the word that one we have we are going through the greatest technological and economic shift in human history, and we need to get our heads out of our asses and start uh, trying to to tackle it and address it. There's like a freaking elephant in the middle of the room just tearing the place apart, and everyone's like like just trying to pretend it's not there. So that's number one. And then number two, letting people know that we actually can solve these problems. We can build a better society for ourselves. That involves valuing ourselves and our time in a way that's independent of the market. Uh, We can build a new type of economy. We need new types of measurements because GDP is a terrible measurement that we just invented less than 100 years ago. And now it's going to keep rising even as more and more Americans get pushed into uh, economic oblivion. So we need to have measurements around the economy that actually tell us how we're doing, like median income, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, childhood success rates, proportion of elderly and quality situations, environmental quality, things that would actually indicate how we're doing as a society. So I go around telling people that we need to build this economy and that we do not have much time. I'm a parent just like you are, Sam, and I am freaked out about the country that we're going to leave our children. And so that's what I spend my days doing is freaking people out a little bit, but then also trying to galvanize energy around meaningful solutions because they are not beyond us yet. Your book is great in the way that it hits both those points because there's a there's an, a lot in there to freak somebody out. You, you paint a very scary picture of just what, what the status quo is now and where it's all headed. But the solution is, as you say, so easily accomplished. I mean, this is something the government we know can do well, unlike everything else the government attempts to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like one of the only things that the government is really, really exceptionally good at. And when when you look at what has happened and you give these, these kind of potted portraits of places like Youngstown, Ohio, and Gary, Indiana, and Camden, New Jersey, and just what happens when jobs disappear, it's incredibly grim, and it is a kind of perfect storm for people where the onus is not on them to figure it out. It's just like a wrecking ball has swung through their lives, and perfectly good, competent people get bowled over by these, what are essentially an abstraction. And it's, it's very easy to see how they, they're not resilient and how society crumbles in the face of that. And what, what we're doing now is, it is mystifying because the, many of these changes are visible if you simply want to look. And yet the conversation we're having, it's starting to become relevant. I mean, certainly AI is a topic of fascination for people, but the idea that this isn't a full court press on this topic and that this conversation is is even novel is pretty startling because as you say you know 5 years 10 years 15 years these are short increments of time when you look at how hard it is to turn the the dreadnought of yes. of our political conversation in the right direction 
Yeah, one thing I say to audiences, I say, look, let's say hypothetically, McKinsey comes out with a report saying 30% of jobs are subject to automation by 2030, which is 12 years from now. Bain comes out with the same report that says 20 to 25%, calls it the great transformation, says it's going to be four times faster and more vicious than the Industrial Revolution, which itself caused mass riots <laughs> and, and, and uh, unrest. The president of MIT comes out and says, the job of MIT now is to help prepare society for the transition. All of those things actually happened. All of those things are real. It's just our media is out to lunch, tracking down our idiot president's tweet of the day. Like it's, it's insane. Uh, and so if you actually start looking at what's happening in real life, I mean, the reason why Trump is our president today is because we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in the swing states. Why isn't that like the main topic of conversation? And the Democrats are like running around trying to figure out what to do about that. And I'll tell them exactly what we are going to do about it. We're going to impose a freedom dividend, give everyone $1,000 a month at, for starters. And then we're going to build a new kind of economy that people can participate in, independent of uh, their region and their skill level. And, and that's a generation long project. It's going to be massively, it's, it's going to be massively challenging, honestly. But like the, the alternative is the unthinkable. The alternative is to witness the disintegration of our society over the coming years. And we are there. Like we are on the cusp where I saw an interview with you, Sam, where you talked about how you can't believe, you still can't believe this guy's our president. Like this country is being torn apart by a struggle between abundance and scarcity and reason and unreason and functioning and dysfunctioning. And I have to say, unreason, dysfunction, scarcity, they're all winning. 59% of Americans cannot afford an unexpected $500 bill. They're just stepping from week to week and paycheck to paycheck, lurching toward an uncertain future. And so expecting them to be politically functional uh, isn't realistic. You know, the way that we're going to reverse that is we're going to secure their future and then we can fix our political discourse, invigorate our government and state, and then start solving the real problems. So that's the, the challenge. That's the revolution. That's what I'm trying to lead. And I know we started this conversation with your saying like, hey, how does one arrive at this? But when you think it all through, you realize we don't have a choice. Like the choice is either this or people like you and me just start like planning for like bulletproof cars for our kids and like, you know, all the Guatemalan package deal. I mean, I have no interest in that. I'm, <laughs> like, I'm an American. I'm a patriot. I'm a man. I'm like a problem solver. Like I'm not just going to watch this society like slip down the tubes while our, like, our institutions all just like sit there on their hands. Well, listen, Andrew, having read your book and, and hearing you speak now, it's, it is a, the, the juxtaposition of you and your ethical intent and your willingness to think through these problems and innovate, the juxtaposition of the obvious products of your mind and, and ethical intelligence and the current occupant of the Oval Office is fairly harrowing, but also inspiring. So I, I, I'm wishing you the, the best of luck in the next couple of years. And please tell us how we can help you direct people to your website and any other resources you want them to know about online. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for that. So the campaign's website is yang2020.com, or you can just Google my name, Andrew Yang. But we need the forces of reason to prevail. And if you go to the website, you can sign up. We have a campaign called One for Humanity, where if you donate $1, that's like a sign that you believe in these ideas and that we need to build a, a more advanced form of economy. But we, we need to fight for this. And I would certainly love for anyone listening to this to join me, find out more. You'll see I have 72 policy proposals on the website that uh, address not just automation, universal basic income, but many other ways we can move forward. And would certainly love to have you join me in this. I need your help. But, and we can do it. We still have the capacities, but we do not have that much time and we need to act fast. Well, it's been a pleasure, Andrew. And I will put links to all those resources on, on my blog where I embed this podcast. And uh, I, I certainly hope our listeners will find out more about you and support you and spread the, the memes we've touched on here, because just increasingly, I think this is the, the unavoidable topic of conversation. So uh, best of luck, Andrew. Please keep it up and make as, as much noise as possible.
Thank you, Sam. Look forward to meeting in person and uh, maybe we'll have an event. I hear you draw crowds wherever you go. So uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, sure. I'll, uh, I'll be in touch. To be continued. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.